In a world where mental health problems are used as common tropes in various forms of storytelling, therapist Ryan Engelstad and executive producer Mike Graham try to determine what lines up with real life and what is just exaggerated fantasy. Listen as we delve into the fantastical tales told about mental health in books, movies, and television. This is Pop Psych 101. Welcome back to Pop Psych 101. I am licensed therapist Ryan Engelstad, and with me, as always, is co-host, executive producer, dad, and soon-to-be New York visitor Mike Graham. Apparently, I'm getting new things added every single week, and uh, I eventually I'm imagining that we just won't have an episode. It'll just be a list of things that I do. I, I enjoy it. It's a nice, quick little way to just share a little bit more about us if people don't know already. Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, Ryan's a dad. <laughs> That's right. And so we both are, are coming off of trick-or-treating because we he sit here recording on Halloween night. Yep. Just got back from taking the boy and the little girl around and, you know, going through all the spooky stuff and getting candy, too much candy, pouring it out, the whole thing. Yeah, and, and appropriate because this week we posted our episode on Stephen King's It!, so now here we are recording our next episode on Halloween night. All very appropriate. I was actually wondering when we said Wednesday and then I looked at the calendar. And I'm like, that's Halloween and we both have kids. I was like, well, we're just going to do it, I guess. <laughs> well, and the, one of the reasons why we're just doing it is because we are on a little bit of a tight schedule because we have some some big stuff coming up. Yeah, we do. And it's kind of crazy. So I do you want to say it? I, I feel like you are significantly more amped for your own reasons. So please, please, <laughs> please announce it yourself. Okay. So it, I don't know how big of a deal this is, but it feels like a big deal as far as just Ryan and I making this podcast, seeing that people are actually listening and we're getting more and more every week. And actually this was yesterday. We, we were contacted by our podcast hosting company. Uh, so if you're a podcaster, Every single podcaster hosts their audio somewhere, and there's there's a few major ones. We're actually on like the brand new cool kid on the block. They're called Anchor. We've loved them since we joined them. They're a free service, and th this isn't a commercial or anything. They're not paying us, but it's like it's just a really easy way to podcast. And for people like Ryan and I, who are super busy all the time, like it makes things easier. Uh, so if you're thinking about podcasting, look into that for ease of use. But anyway, they 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 sent us an email and they officially selected our podcast and invited us to go to New York City, actually Manhattan, and record in their Anchor Studio podcast lab that they built in their headquarters. And it's pretty crazy because we're going to go. Yeah, I mean, we both, I mean, for people who don't know, Mike, you are in Kansas City, Missouri, That's a, right. a, a and quick 18-hour drive away. Yeah, so it's 18 and a half hours, and that, that I'm just like, I hate you, Ryan, because Ryan lives in New Jersey, and he's an hour and a half away. I'm like, this is a day trip for him. It was very easy for me to say, obviously, we're doing this. At the same time, it feels both ridiculous and uh, totally normal that, of course, we'd be, we'd be doing this. People want this information. It would be natural that we would be selected right. for such a thing, and we're really excited to be able to have an opportunity to, to spread you know, what we're trying to do here to a large audience. Absolutely. And Ryan and I were actually talking about this before we started recording tonight. And 
for me, like I've always created stuff and I've always hoped that like something I created would have any sort of connection with people. This is, this has started kind of doing that, but I've, I've really been trying to just keep like our real goals in mind, if that makes sense. And so when we thought, when we decided to go and my wife and I talked about it, the big thing was, this is an opportunity for Ryan and I to possibly, maybe, and it, it might not even, but have more people kind of tune in and hear what we have to say about mental health, not only in pop culture, but, you know, Ryan does that really great ending to every episode and it has a lot of good things and a lot of things to learn. So it's just, it's an opportunity to, to teach and also relate to people. So you might be listening to this while we are sitting in the Anchor Podcast Studio Lab so yeah, um, wish this episode us luck. comes out the day yeah. <laughs> the day that we're going to be in the studio. So we will be recording at in New York while this episode's out. But I guess we should probably uh, talk about today. <laughs> we should, yeah, yeah. You know, all that's being said, we're very excited. So please look out for that episode in a week and a half or so. But today we are talking about the perks of being a wallflower. This is a real deep one, so it's going to be, I think, a really good episode. Let's do it. Yeah. All right. Let's do it. Once on a yellow piece of paper with green lines, he wrote a poem, and he called it Chops, because that was the name of his dog, and that's what it was all about. And his teacher gave him an A, and a gold star, and his mother hung it on the kitchen door and read it to his aunts. That was the year Father Tracy took all the kids to the zoo. And he let them sing on the bus. And his little sister was born with tiny toenails and no hair. And his mother and father kissed a lot. And the girl around the corner sent him a valentine signed with a row of X's. And he had to ask his father what the X's meant. And his father always tucked him in bed at night and was always there to do it. Once on a piece of white paper with blue lines, he wrote a poem. And he called it Autumn because that was the name of the season, and that's what it was all about. And his teacher gave him an A and asked him to write more clearly. And his mother never hung it on the kitchen door because of its new paint. And the kids told him that Father Tracy smoked cigars and left butts on the pews, and sometimes they would burn holes. That was the year his sister got glasses with thick lenses and black frames and the girl around the corner laughed when he asked her to go see Santa Claus. And the kids told him why. His mother and father kissed a lot. And his father never tucked him in bed at night. And his father got mad when he cried for him to do it. Once on a paper torn from his notebook, he wrote a poem. And he called it Innocence, a question. Because that was the question about his girl. And that's what it was all about. And his professor gave him an A. And a strange, steady look. And his mother never hung it on the kitchen door because he never showed her. That was the year that Father Tracy died. And he forgot how the end of the Apostles' Creed went. And he caught his sister making out on the back porch. And his mother and father never kissed or even talked. And the girl around the corner wore too much makeup that made him cough when he kissed her. But he kissed her anyway. 
because that was the thing to do. And at 3 a.m., he tucked himself into bed, his father snoring soundly. That's why on the back of a brown paper bag, he tried another poem. And he called it absolutely nothing, because that's what it was really all about. And he gave himself an A, and a slash on each damned wrist. And he hung it on the bathroom door, because this time he didn't think he could reach the kitchen. Okay, today we are talking about The Perks of Being a Wallflower by Stephen Chbosky, published in 1999 and taking place between 1991 and 1992. Uh, this is a novel written in a series of letters to an unnamed person referred to only as Dear Friend by the main protagonist, Charlie. Charlie is a 15-year-old beginning his freshman year of high school. He's uh, he's an intelligent kid, introverted and sensitive. He tends to he tends to think like a lot. At the beginning of the book, we find out that Charlie has recently lost his best and seemingly only friend, Michael, uh, to suicide. Unfortunately, we we also find out that the person that Charlie feels that like loved him the most in his life, his aunt Helen, died some time ago in a car accident actually on Charlie's birthday while driving to get Charlie a birthday present. Charlie was seen by professionals as a child for mental health issues and actually begins seeing a psychiatrist once again after a mental breakdown near the time of his birthday in December of 91. In the beginning of the school year, Charlie meets stepbrother and sister Patrick and Sam who offer their friendship despite being seniors, and Charlie attaches to that friendship like immediately. Sam is an intelligent, independent, and beautiful young woman, and Charlie quickly falls in love with her. Patrick is funny, charismatic, and openly gay, but in a secret relationship with the school's star football player. There's a lot of ups and downs for Charlie and his friends, and a huge part of this story is the coming-of-age themes as Charlie deals with anxieties of losing his friends as they prepare to leave for college. The main things that we're going to touch on today are... Charlie's sudden mood shifts near his birthday, the way Charlie's thinking is presented in the book, the traumatic losses Charlie has dealt with in his past, and the revelation near the end of the book that Charlie's Aunt Helen molested him every Saturday as a young child, and very importantly, the way he finds this out. Uh, this story ends with Charlie in a mental hospital recovering from a catatonic state he slipped into after the memories of molestation surface. But there is a sense that Charlie's treatment is working and he is healing. He becomes supportive of his older friends and the reasons they're leaving, and he's positive about the future for himself. So this is a really intense story on a lot of different levels. And unfortunately, it's a it's a story that is familiar for me as a therapist, you know, seeing kids who've experienced various forms of traumatic events and, and the myriad ways in which it impacts their life. Ryan, this was a very intense one. You know, it's crazy because I've seen, I saw the movie years ago and I remember like loving this movie. And so we're, we're actually doing the book version today. So we, we did, we read through the book. Well, I listened to the book. <laughs> I'm not a huge reader, but I did listen to the book. <laughs> And Ryan, I, I assume that you've read this book like more than once is what it sounds like. I have read the book uh, a couple of times and rewatched the movie for context. 
you know, we should note that the movie is directed and written, or the screenplay is written and directed by the author. So all the same source material in terms of things that are referenced. It's really one of these things that you could go back and forth, but we did do the book. There's a bigger story there. But yeah, I really liked it the first time as a movie. And then I go back and read this book or listen to this book. And it's, I was like, wow, like this is really intense. So, and, and personally, this was a story that, you know, in some ways I could relate to the, the character is so well, I think described and, and he's a full character sometimes in, in movies or, or stories about people with mental illness issues, you sort of only see the mental illness. You only see the symptoms, but Charlie is such a, uh, a vivid character and, and, and rightly so in terms of, oh, yeah, I agree. Yeah. The author really, as I think shared some of his own personal experiences. I did. I did read that Stephen Chbosky actually did pull on. It took him five years to plan and write the novel, but it's all pulled from personal memory. So that's that's kind of neat. But also you, you think, man, he might have had a hard time or maybe he knew someone with a hard time. Right. We don't know exactly how much of it is maybe autobiographical, but nonetheless, it's 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 an intense story. And it's funny because both the book and the movie, this is filled with this lightheartedness, which I can appreciate because you don't necessarily see the intensity of the trauma that Charlie has dealt with until it starts to kind of come out over time. He doesn't overplay it. He doesn't right. start like, this is happening, like, pay attention to this. Like, it's just really natural. It's the way it would happen, I guess, in real life. That's one of the things that I like, because a lot of times, whether it be depression, anxiety, or PTSD, it is much more subtle, I think, than is often portrayed in books and movies to that extent. A lot of times it's, oh, these intense symptoms, but a lot of times it's it's the quiet ones, as we sort of say. It's the kids you don't necessarily know. Yeah, it's much more played out in your head. Mm-hmm. And so, like I said, uh, up top was this This is written through a, a series of letters by Charlie in the first person. And that's why we get to see into his thoughts and really see like how things sort of gradually come to a head at certain points. Yeah, and I also love that because this is uh, in similar ways an exercise I often give my patients letter writing, journaling, things like that, because whether the author intended it or not, you know, Charlie sort of mentions that this letter writing is something that is really helpful for him over the course of the the book and the movie. He does. But but you said before we started recording, when we were kind of messaging about this, that this was a very clear diagnosis for Charlie. And I think we should talk about like what, what your thoughts were on that so we can kind of give it a name and that way we can ask questions about it. Absolutely. So as you mentioned in the synopsis, Charlie has experienced a couple of different traumas over the course of his life. There's a recent one with the the death of his friend by suicide, and there's the historical one that he is sort of gaining more and more, I think, recognition of over the course of the story, which is the molestation or sexual abuse uh, from his aunt when he was younger. And it's not, as we said before, it's not super clear over the course of most of the story, but especially at the end, and you, as you see Charlie start to really break down it becomes more and more clear that what Charlie is dealing with is is PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. It's crazy because I was going through and I'm like, you could tell he's got real problems. He he was in a, you know, seeing doctors when he was a kid. He's back in the psychiatrist after a nervous breakdown when he's just turning 16. The whole time I'm like, what is going on with him? And you feel bad for him too, because he's really feeling intense feelings, but it, it really, it does take till the end till you really go, okay, yeah, he's he's got some traumatic stuff and he didn't deal with it correctly well to the to the extent you can deal with it correctly yeah, yeah. that's a bad way to put it 
Well, right. It's it's when when we're dealing with trauma, the sort of initial emotional and thought formation that we have when the traumatic event is experienced is often what sticks with us throughout the extent of our life in some cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I actually do like the way they portrayed this in the movie that when Charlie's experiencing sexual interactions with there's one with Sam, there's one with Mary and I'm forgetting Elizabeth. Mar- yes, Mary Elizabeth, thank you. In the midst of those events, he's having flashbacks. Which you can't, yeah, it's just, it's really well written because you look back and you see all this stuff. So yeah, what I'm wondering right off the top, I think that I have a lot of misconceptions about what PTSD is. So I was wondering if you could like explain in therapist terms <laughs> or medical terms, like what, what is, what exactly is PTSD? Sure. Thank you. Yeah. So, and I'll, I'll go through quickly just the sort of criteria for diagnosing PTSD, because I do think a lot of people have misconceptions or preconceived notions about what it looks like. Sure. You know, it's, it's most commonly associated with veterans and things like that, but oftentimes uh, sexual abuse as well. The, the main one is that the person was either exposed to or experienced themselves some sort of traumatic event, such examples as death of a loved one, threatened death to themselves, actual or threatened serious injury. So things like car accidents are actually one of the most common precursors to PTSD. Yep. And actual or threatened sexual violence. So these are the most common stressors or triggers or traumatic events. Okay. And so a person has a stressor happen. uh, Yeah. and And I should stress that this could be direct exposure, witnessing the trauma. In other words, witnessing this, these events happen to someone else. Okay. It can even happen through indirect exposure, like learning that a relative or close friend was exposed to a trauma. So is this is this because I mean, so the brain is is super it's amazing, but it's it's imperfect in so many ways. I mean, this seems like that would be a result of of just like this brain not being this perfect machine that uh, that people that don't have these issues might think that it is. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll give you a quick example. So I mentioned car accidents. So someone's in a car accident, let's say, especially things like blindsided type things where you didn't even, you know, see the accident coming. That event sticks in the brain and it sticks in the brain with an, uh, a belief or an association or a feeling. An example might be, I'm not safe when I'm driving my car because this bad thing could happen anytime. Oh, wow. So that, that belief then gets tied to that type of event and tied to that type of experience. So now when you drive a car in general, now this belief is now right below the surface of I'm not safe. So okay. this is what, what's very common for people with PTSD is that the, the initial event then gets sort of generalized to other similar events, as it does with Charlie. Yeah, so this is just like flooding me with questions. <laughs> First off, here's a misconception right off the bat, is with PTSD, my misconception being, and maybe this isn't one, but from what I was explained to me actually by a therapist was when you experience something traumatic, your brain stores that memory in the wrong like memory part of your brain. And instead of putting it in the long-term memory section, it stores it in the short-term memory section. So you're constantly recalling it like it just happened. I've actually never heard it described that specifically in that way, but I totally agree with it um, in context. Okay, okay. I mean, that's how I had a therapist. I've already said I've been diagnosed bipolar and major depressive, but my my very first diagnosis or whatever you want to call it was PTSD. And that was the first thing I started seeing a psychiatrist and therapist for. And so that's kind of how I learned all this stuff. And 
You know, Ryan, we've talked about how diagnoses are these. It's not a perfect science, so it's it's just one of the things I've gone through. Yeah, it's it's true. Actually, we we I had that interaction with one of our commenters on Instagram. I think this past week or two, because I think there's a lot of frustration with that experience of misdiagnosis or even avoiding treatment for fear of misdiagnosis. So you know, with something like PTSD, if you know you've had this traumatic event. Because I think people's natural inclination is to not want that event to control their life or to dictate everything. So if I have to go to therapy for this thing that happened 20 or 30 years ago, people are going to want to downplay that or are going to want to not think that that still has an impact on them. But the reality is I have patients in their 50s and 60s who experienced traumatic events as a child, and it does still have an impact on them. And it's, it's sad and scary to think that that can happen. But it does, and it can also be treated. We, we've said that PTSD starts with a trigger or a traumatic memory or, or event that happens to a person. What, what kind of comes after that as far as how do people start presenting it? How does Charlie start presenting it in the story that maybe gave you a heads up right away? One is what we call intrusive symptoms in the sense that that traumatic event is persistently re-experienced in a couple of different ways. For example, unwanted upsetting memories, which I think Charlie sort of experiences an increasing intensity over the course of the story. Nightmares and flashbacks are the sort of most stereotypical ones. So there's a there's a misconception because in my head it was all about nightmares. You have to be having nightmares in order for it to be put in that category. Nightmares are are one of the intrusive symptoms, um, but it doesn't certainly it is not required. And then an avoidance is I would say is fairly typical as well. But this sort of presumes that the person knows or has a good handle on what their traumatic experience was. Right. So in, in Charlie's case, he doesn't avoid, for example, the sort of intimate encounters with these girls because he doesn't really have a good handle on what the traumatic event was that he experienced. So he's not portraying a lot of avoidance during the course of the story. As far as Charlie, he actually has a really great experience towards the beginning of his freshman year. He does meet Sam and Patrick and a whole cast of characters. And Charlie sort of always felt like an outsider, especially after the death of his best friend, Michael, who committed suicide, what seems like was like the year before. I think he said last May, and this is in August. So very recent, but he, he makes new friends, even though he, he thought he wasn't going to make friends. But then we get to, like, we come up on December. His, his birthday is December the 24th. And on December the 24th, 1983, the whole book just changes. Like, it mm -hmm. completely just takes a left turn. All of a sudden, the writing becomes, in even parts, confusing. Like, you, you don't really know what he's talking about or if he's saying true things. Sure. or Yeah, it's, it's kind of strange. And I'm thinking, wait, what's going on here? He starts having, like, racing thoughts. It seems like maybe, like, a sudden depression comes on. But he, but he says he feels it coming on. So when you, maybe even your first time through, is this like a something, like are these signs of it? I don't, I don't really know exactly what I'm saying here, but. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely on the right track. So in, at the same time that people might be experiencing these intrusive symptoms, the unwanted upsetting memories, the nightmares, the flashbacks, there's also going to be what we call negative alterations in cognition or mood. Examples might be negative affect. Um, feeling isolated, which certainly Charlie does, even when he has friends, that there's this feeling of um, of isolation. Difficulty experiencing positive affect. 
So the only time we really see and what is affect? I'm sorry, generally interchangeable with mood. Okay. Another way, way another way of putting that would be difficulty experiencing um, positive emotions. So the only time we we really hear or see Charlie being really happy, you know, initially is when he smokes weed. Right. Uh, the scene in the truck, he has a small moment yeah. where he says, "I feel infinite," That's and right. it seems like a surprise to him almost. That's like, right. Yep. He never feels that way. Mm-hmm. But but he's also like constantly searching for the happy feeling, it seems like. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I think that's why he latches on so strongly to these two friends is that they do provide him some relief from that isolation and negative mood that he probably is experiencing in general. I mean, this book just kind of... <laughs> it, it Once it takes that left turn, it just keeps going down this this path. I wouldn't say is very bright after that. Although, I mean, it does have uplifting moments in it for Charlie. But one of the things I was wondering about was his attachment to the seniors, like, right away. Yeah, it's really interesting. And especially the sort of romantic connection that he starts to develop with Sam. Like, immediately, he thinks yeah. he falls in love with her. Like, Yeah, and he's, and he's 15. Exactly. And, and as I'm reading that, I'm getting worried immediately. <laughs> because, you know, for people who are experiencing this level of negative mental health system symptoms becoming dependent or reliant to a certain extent on a romantic interest is unfortunately i would say common you know whether the, the interest turns into a relationship or not we can put a lot of our positive mood becomes dependent upon that possible relationship this this also makes me think about the fact that charlie seems to be an overthinker for sure. <laughs> Initially, when I'm reading this, I and obviously I'm at this point, I'm looking at it from I got to talk to Ryan about this. So I, I'm just asking myself questions because of the racing thoughts and the sudden depression and especially the overthinking. The And it's it only gets worse. Like I was thinking like mood effective somewhere on that spectrum. Like that's where I was led to begin with. My question being. If someone hasn't had like the big revelation that Charlie sort of has towards the end of the book, how how are you going to, I, I guess, get it right if if they're presenting symptoms that kind of show something else and then and then get treated correctly, if that makes sense? Oh, absolutely does. Because realistically, if a, a patient comes into treatment and either is not aware or is dealing with some some level of denial of a traumatic event that happened to them, you know, therapists, unfortunately, are not psychic. We can't just guess or presume that there has been a traumatic event and immediately go into treatment for PTSD. So to your point, we go based on the symptoms that are reported and observed. There may be some signs if if Charlie is reporting weird memories or getting really uncomfortable in sexual interactions, like if he reported that in therapy, that would be a warning sign. But outside of that, there's not a lot of stuff here that a therapist would be able to say, okay, even though you don't know it, I'm suggesting you might have some sort of trauma in the past that we haven't addressed yet. You know, that's that's really unlikely to happen. And that's why when people talk about misdiagnosis, it's really what, what therapists sometimes refer to as a working diagnosis. So okay. based on what we know and what we see at this stage, you might be diagnosed with just, you know, major depressive disorder. And then over the course of treatment, whether it be something like cognitive behavioral therapy, the things like traumatic uh, experiences may be more directly revealed, and then the sort of track can shift to address that uh, more appropriately. So, so what happens? Let's say a person never reveals these things to you. Let's say they do have PTSD, and it's 
it's very certain, like the reality is that it's PTSD, but they get diagnosed by, you know, one, two, three psychiatrists that they have this other thing and they're getting treated for that, like, especially like bipolar or like an affective disorder, like a mood affective, which I didn't know the affective <laughs> mood, <laughs> but I just always heard that term. And they're getting getting treated with mood stabilizers and things like that that are very specifically used to treat those mood disorders and not necessarily PTSD. Like, what what does that do to a, a person? I, I will say, in terms of psychiatrists, similar to therapists, we're only going to go based on what's reported and what's observed. In terms of possible medication, you're only going to treat what's seen. So you're not going to make any assumptions. But I will say that if Charlie's reporting low mood, you know, isolation, difficulty sleeping, you know, there are a lot of different symptoms that might come up alongside the possible PTSD. Those medications are are still going to be effective for the surface level symptoms that someone with PTSD is going to be experiencing. So it's very unlikely that it would increase or worsen the symptoms someone with PTSD is experiencing. The reason I asked that and the reason I was wondering about that answer was if there was a listener or someone out there that that was in therapy and maybe they were aware of that they did have some trauma and they're not telling their therapist, is this like, okay, don't tell me till you're ready? Or is this something that like you would encourage like, yes, please tell your therapist right away that you had these traumatic things happen to you? Okay, I got you. Great question. So I will say that when I'm in, in a session with a patient and it's clear that maybe they are thinking about something or, or feeling something and they're not ready to share that, I will always tell a patient that it's okay if they don't want to share that in session. Because the reality is, is that you can always work on the symptoms without having to address the specific trauma. That, that doesn't mean that you won't be cured or you won't get to the root of the problem because there are absolutely improvements and coping skills that can be developed even if you don't sort of say the big trauma, capital T trauma, as we often say. There are certain forms of treatment of PTSD that don't involve talking about the trauma at all. Well, well then that immediately brings up the question of towards the end of the book, Charlie actually does spend a couple months in the mental hospital that's kind of during the epilogue. Sam goes to see him. There's actually a lot of positive feelings towards the end of the book about him feeling like things are going to look up for him. He's he's less worried about his friends leaving him, things like this. But you don't know what happened in that two-month period. So what kind of treatment would you give someone in this situation? Because it's not specified, I mean, we can assume that it's some sort of cognitive therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy based treatment, you know, things essentially to help Charlie change the thought patterns that he associates with that traumatic event and the ways that they're disturbing his life in the present. But there are a lot of, of really interesting uh, therapeutic approaches with PTSD. For example, EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Right. EMDR is a really fascinating treatment that's becoming more and more validated in its applicability, not just for PTSD, but with for other um, applications as well. And essentially, it is, and this is going to sound kind of bizarre, so just stay with me. It's, a, it's all bizarre. The brain is bizarre, right, of right? course. <laughs> <laughs> so essentially, the patient, after identifying, and this is just going to be a quick and dirty sort of review of what it is, but identifies, let's say, a core memory or a, a most uh, painful memory. And using that as sort of a starting point, they hold that memory and either the negative association or a negative feeling that comes with it in their mind, and then they follow 
something that's moving with their eye gaze. So that might be the therapist's uh, fingers going back and forth across their visual field. It might be um, some therapist. Could it be a a pocket watch? Oh, no. Like swinging in the air? Yeah, no. Uh, Well, having taken some uh, pretty intensive EMDR uh, training sessions, it's basically just fingers. There's a light box where you can follow a light that goes back and forth across like a little screen. Okay. And then for people who have visual issues, there's a tapping technique that essentially you can focus on the physical sensations going back and forth. So what is this? What is it a comp? Like, what are you trying to do with this method? The the key word is reprocessing, but desensitization and reprocessing are both happening in this process. So essentially the theory behind EMDR is that during REM sleep, as an example, you know, your eye, your eye, eyes go back and forth, rapid eye movement. And it's thought that during that process, our memories, our experiences from the day are tied, sort of tied together with our thoughts or emotions. EMDR attempts to sort of separate the connections that are sometimes built, I would say, improperly um, when it comes to trauma. So before I mentioned what times what times has happened with people in car accidents is that they have this feeling of I'm not safe. So we first attempt to desensitize the person to that feeling of I'm not safe, and we sort of reduce the intensity of which they experience that thought or that feeling. And then we reprocess by identifying a thought that they would rather have in those situations. So they might want to feel that, for example, they can control their car and thus they can keep themselves safe. But, you know, whatever their preferred thought or preferred feeling would be, we attempt to tie that thought or feeling now with the either present triggers or the historical memory. Oh, wow. So this process is essentially trying to, I I usually compare it to like a computer, which is like an old school reference, but like defragging, which is when like in your computer, you sort of reorder all the data. So it's sort of nice and clean and fits where it's supposed to fit. And it doesn't slow your computer down anymore. EMDR is sort of this for your brain. So how does, how does somebody figure that out? Like, does it start as a theory and then they just see if it works and then people report back, I feel better or? Yeah, essentially. So, and that's, that happens over the course of a session as well. You, you initially share, uh, the patient says, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how disturbing is this memory to you? And over the course of a session, ideally you get from a seven, eight or nine disturbing down to a zero. It doesn't always happen, obviously, but Ideally, that's that you're getting that subjective level of distress consistently reduced. So that's EMDR, and that's one way to treat it. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to talk about an app that we are actually currently on. It's a mental health app, and you'll hear about it now. A quick break to talk about Sanomind. Sanomind is an app available for iOS and soon to be on Android that serves as a mental health wellness platform, connecting you to audio content created by licensed mental health professionals. You can listen to audio content on a vast array of mental health topics and learn more about your favorite contributors. Sanomind hopes to be a resource for people who don't have access to mental health therapists in their area. And as such, we are honored to be the first and right now the only podcast available on the Sanomind platform. So definitely check out their app. And now back to Pop Psych 101. All right, and we're back. So Ryan, we were talking, and in the first half, we were talking about kind of the misconceptions and and trying to get people to understand what PTSD actually is, how you would go about treating it, at least some of those things. But now, now what I'm wondering and what I want to kind of get into is trauma. And we've, it, I mean, it seemed super intense up top there with it's 
sexual abuse or injury. And especially with Charlie, his memories are, you know, a friend's suicide. Like this stuff is pretty dark and heavy. But from what we were talking about, you said that trauma doesn't always have to be these, what people would view as these incredibly heavy things. So like what could fall in that category? You know, it's interesting. I often tell my patients that trauma is subjective. You know, no one can tell anyone else what their experience is or whether or not it should be traumatic because of there are so many factors that that can go into a traumatic event. As we said, just witnessing, for example, an assault happening, spousal abuse or uh, child abuse. You know, if you're a child and you see your dad hit your mom, you know, a lot of people might not think that 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 would necessarily be traumatic for the kid, but absolutely is. But to use even smaller examples, and this is something that I've written about online and we even shared in our Twitter feed last week. When I was 13, yeah, middle of seventh grade, I moved from New, I'm sorry, I moved from Maryland to New Jersey. Right. And how far is that? It's about a four hour drive. I failed geography. I failed geography, <laughs> right? <laughs> so from right out of, right outside DC, where I grew up, then we moved to New, central New Jersey. Um, so yeah, let's say, let's call it a four hours. And, and obviously I, I want to state up front here that I'm in no way comparing what I experienced to what Charlie experienced, but I am acknowledging here that even small events like a large move can be uh, in their own way traumatic. Yeah, leave yeah. a lasting effect on somebody. For sure. And we talked in, in, up front in the first half how people can form negative beliefs about themselves or the environment as a result of their traumatic experiences. And certainly that was the case for me. I, I did read that article that you wrote. And guys, if you want to read it, it's on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And it's, it's, to me, it was a powerful article and gave me a lot of insight to who you are. And you had mentioned it before. So I, I kind of know that this is like a, an important part of your life. And it, it was about you moving. So, so kind of, if you just want to give like kind of what happened uh, in your story that you told. Oh, sure. So um, the, in, the, in the story that I told, it, this came out actually while I was doing uh, EMDR training, because you start with a negative thought, a negative belief, and you sort of trace that back to memories or experiences that you had that sort of feel like they are reminiscent of that negative thought mm -hmm. or memory. And this was the experience that I had in EMDR, basically starting with something very surface level, something like worrying about financial concerns, for example, something that anybody could relate to. And for me, that was tied to this sort of fear of from when I moved of basically, and again, you know, this is subjective. I, I, I In reality, I don't think this was actually the case, but because mm -hmm. of the move, I sort of developed this feeling or of you know, I'm not going to get what I want because when I was 13, I did not want to move. So I, that was the sort of negative belief that I formed. Right. And in the article you held, it seems like you held on to that into your adulthood and then, and kind of put that in onto yourself as far as what your responsibilities are to your family, who you clearly love so much. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and this is the, this is the really positive thing about therapy when it comes to PTSD is that now for me, I can recognize when this negative thought or negative feeling is coming up for me. I can, I can see it happening. I can feel it, the associations that sort of come up for me. Right, right. And just to take it to the book real quick, Charlie, who was in therapy it, as a child, he says at one point he feels it coming up. Yeah, exactly. 
And I think that that's really true um, for people who have experienced trauma, that this, this connection, this association starts to be developed. So for me, that work really led to me having a much better hang- handle both on the experiences I had as a kid and the sort of negative thoughts that followed into adulthood, as you pointed out. What I take from that is that you recognize these experiences through therapy. You, you're now able to compartmentalize them more correctly, see them coming on, this kind of thing. What, that, what that's saying to me is that therapy isn't going to, quote, make you better always. But you can use it as a tool to direct yourself when you know things are going to kind of go the wrong way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, it's tough with, with trauma, with PTSD, because, you know, unlike, let's say, just um, treating someone who has a generic anxiety disorder or depressive disorder, and that's not to compare things being worse or better than the others, but trauma is very specific in that that trauma is never going to stop having had happened, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, 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 I and, know and, the feeling, yeah. Yeah, and as a result of that, you, no matter how much positive coping skills and, and insight you have into yourself and your emotional experience, you can, and, and in some cases do, still get triggered because of that trauma you experienced. Yeah. So, and that's, so that's why it's, it's PTSD is not something that's really cured. Right. It's, it's something that you develop the skills to recognize when the triggers are happening, recognize when the unwanted memories are happening and sort of do the next right thing, whether that's the coping skill or the mindfulness skill, the using your support system skill, that's going to help you to act in a way that's going to prevent a complete collapse. Exactly. It can be collapse, a negative coping skill from taking hold, all that stuff. That really makes me think of what, what kind of happens towards the end of the book when Charlie has his complete collapse and winds up in the, yeah. the mental hospital for a couple of months. And it, I don't, I don't want to sound bad here, but this, to me, it's incredibly interesting and, and, and how this works. So Charlie is going through these rough times. Things started around his birthday in December, like I said before. And, and he has kind of like a medium nervous breakdown or, or, you know, collapse sort of thing. And people are very concerned about him. He actually, his friends separate from him for a little bit until he sort of proves that he's ready to be around them again. And then Sam, the, the girl he meets and who's a few years older than him, the senior, who has said throughout the whole book that he is too young for her. He, she knows he has a crush on him and he should never think about it. Well, towards the end, she doesn't kind of give in to him. She, she makes an advance at him and they start fooling around with each other. And because of this, he, he stops it. He's clearly uncomfortable with it. But because of this, Charlie has a memory that he's completely blocked out of his mind resurface very suddenly. He talks so much about his Aunt Helen, who he loved dearly and who he says loved him the most throughout his life. And, he, and everything he says about her is super positive throughout the book. And then all of a sudden this, this memory surfaces that, and it's, it's vivid and it's, and, it's, and it's destroying when he remembers it, is that his aunt molested him every Saturday when he was a kid. I mean, to me, that's just like, how does that happen? Is this common it, with, this, with this sort of stuff happening with people? Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's hard to say how common it is, but it's absolutely um, something that comes up with PTSD that 
you used the word compartmentalize before. Right. And, you know, it's I, one of the big words I know. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> but a common trait of PTSD <laughs> is separation from those memories. We even think of it as depersonalize those memories. So we we even think that, oh, that's not something that happened to me. You know, maybe it happened to my brother or sister, or that was something that, that, that they were traumatized by, but not me. Yeah. Yeah. So we, there is a tendency for us to kind of set up those, um, what we call like ego protections. So we don't have to think about the trauma, trauma that happened to us. It just makes me feel bad for Charlie, you know, look yeah, at all this stuff sure. that's happened to him. And, and we, yeah. when we talked about 13 reasons why in that episode, we, we kind of mm -hmm. came to the conclusion that you know, because of the way it's portrayed, like all this stuff happening to just a small group of people. But when I, when I'm reading this book, it's like, you know, this, this, this is real. This is somebody out there. Yeah, absolutely. That this stuff has all happened to. He, you know, he does lose that aunt. And even though these things happened, that doesn't mean he didn't love her. And that's got to, that's a whole different ball of wax. He does lose his best friend. I don't know. I just feel bad for Charlie. And, and, like everything, all of his actions and his feelings make sense once you get to this section. It does come across as real. And I think one of the things that I appreciated about the realness was really the support of Charlie's family. You know, he acknowledges he has a good relationship with his mother and father. It comes across very clearly that his brother and sister are very supportive of him. You know, they don't, I think they give sort of um, passing acknowledgments of the struggle that they know he's going through. But they never, they never harp on it. His they mom, never... his mom, actually, more than anything, is understanding, and and they, I yeah. mean, are like when things start happening, like they kind of jump to action. Yep. Which is actually from everything we've covered so far, it's really the only example I've seen of that with the family so far. Yeah, I think I agree. I think this is one of the best examples of family support that we've seen to this point, because I think for someone who's going through trauma, you know, that's the biggest thing that you want to feel is that you are not judged. You are not pitied, but just that you are seen as... And understood. Yep, we know this thing happened to you. And it's actually interesting, you know, because it's it's revealed at the end that his parents did not know this, this aunt did this stuff to him. So they only know the extent to which, you know, he was depressed, I guess. And that his friend, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm, his friend committed suicide, yeah. So they know that he's going through a rough time, but not the sort of extent of it. So they're very supportive of him, even in not knowing and then as it's depicted, as you mentioned up top, that there is this sort of pseudo happy ending as he's shown sort of making progress. And I do think his family being aware of the trauma that he's experienced is a big part of that. And I also feel that it's important for me to acknowledge a sort of similar support that I had as, as, as I talked about my experience at EMDR and the whole move and stuff. You know, it's something that I think my, I know my parents feel bad about, you know, having read that is that. They didn't know, I think, the extent that I was struggling with that experience. But I think yeah. one of- Were you an introvert? Oh, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah, big time. And it's only in, in recent years and taking improv classes and doing things like that that I've started to crawl out of that uh, natural tendency. I think one of the reasons that they didn't know is that I knew that they were there. I always had the support of my siblings and my you parents. Knew you had trust in them, even though you were dealing with something. You, yeah. you still knew your family had your back. Yeah. So even when I was struggling or upset or lonely or sad, you know, I was, I never questioned that my family being there for me if I needed them. 
Now, did I always choose to use them as a, as the support that they were clearly there for me? Um, no, I think, but that's also just being a teenager, right? Well, and that's exactly how Charlie yeah. does his family. He he takes it on, and that is how teenagers do. They they take the world on their shoulders, and they a lot of times their feelings of alienation or 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 however you want to put that, or they they take it on themselves and and they do, you know, it's even when your little kid says, let me, you know, I'll do it all by myself. It's, it's kind of that, you know? Yeah. This, the sense of, I can figure this out. You know, you have the confidence of a 15 year old (laughs) to bottle that. I just think both that being my personal experience and the experience that comes across for Charlie, for people who have experienced trauma, having that support, unfortunately is not always the case, but when it is the case, being able to use it, even at the expense of your pride or guilt you are going to be better off as a result, as we do see Charlie being towards the end of his treatment process, or really the beginning of his treatment process, I should say. So Charlie in the epilogue, like we said, is having positive thoughts and and feeling positive about the future coming up. If you were to give just your professional view, like where where, where do you see Charlie going in the future? I mean, there's no question for me that Charlie is a candidate that's going to struggle with intimate relationships. Part of me wishes there was a part two to this because that's something that I I would really want to see him hopefully developing healthy relationships, both friends and significant other down the line, because that's that's gonna be something as we see him struggle with it in the, the story, it's gonna continue to be an issue. You know, this these intimate interactions are potentially always gonna be triggers for him. So the extent to which he can overcome that is going to be a, a process for sure. What do you think as a reader, what's a positive thing that we can, because even, even I, as someone who, who doesn't know a lot about, I mean, even though I've, I've gone through my own issues and I've had EMDR and, and that's, that's a whole nother story that, you know, hopefully we'll tell eventually on this show. But even, even me relating to some of this, I got the sense that, well, he's not okay at the end. Like I thought, well, you know, he, this is going to happen again and again. Like he's feeling positive now, but he's going to exp- like, he's going to have to continue. So I think that's a easily viewable thing when you're reading it. So what can we as a reader take from this in a positive way at the end? That's a great question because for me, having worked in an adolescent psychiatric uh, unit, granted outpatient, but certainly interacted with people who went through an inpatient process similar to Charlie. I always framed it for them as because they've been through this treatment process at the age that they're at, they have a leg up on their fellow adolescents. They are able to develop, at least they have the opportunity to develop, you know, emotional intelligence, emotional self-awareness that their peers are not going to have and are not going to have to develop for years ahead. So it's an wow. opportunity it's an opportunity for Charlie to have the self-awareness for him to grow as a person and grow as a person that can have healthy relationships that he does not have to be defined by the trauma he experienced. I think that's a good place to kind of kind of end this, you know, we don't have to define ourselves by things from the past and we can learn to we can learn to grow as people, uh, but we have to get to our ratings today. And Ryan, I think I know where you're going to go with this one, but uh, just to let everyone know that hasn't listened yet, Ryan rates on a scale of one to five, the accuracy of whatever we're covering that week. And then after that, I rate on a one to five, uh, how much I liked something. So Ryan, what, what did you think of this one? 
So I'm going to go this week one, I'm going to out of five wallflowers. And Perfect. I, I, I am uh, quite happily going to give this a five. Yeah. It's hard to find anything to point at that is inaccurately portrayed or inappropriate or harmful, you know, even to a viewer or a reader. There, there are certainly triggering aspects if you have your own trauma. There are things that might be difficult to to read or to watch. Right. And then we didn't even get into the fact that this book has been banned. And um, yeah, I was just thinking that, yeah. like, like <laughs> this is this book is, I mean, to the T, exactly how things happen, and and how understated they can actually be. But they're all in your head, and how people don't notice. And I mean, just everything is perfect. And yet, this book gets banned. That, but that's a whole nother episode. Well, yeah, and and, and I'll, I'll touch on it in my my epilogue because I think there's some some important notes to touch on that. But safe to say, this is a really valuable piece for anyone who's trying to learn about PTSD or get a sense of what it looks like. So five out of five for me. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. As far as my en- enjoyment rating, uh, five. This was an excellent book. Uh, just incredibly vivid and well written. I love the first pers- the first person perspective in the form of a letter. I mean, that even adds like a mysterious, like who's this person aspect to it, but also because it was so accurate and I could relate so much to the Charlie character. And I mean, this was high school when I was watching it, but it was also high school with somebody that was dealing with issues that maybe not everyone's dealing with. So yeah, no, it's a five for me too. Fantastic. Well, we both love this movie and obviously we'll both very highly recommend it to anyone who's looking for more information. So with that, thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll talk to you from New York next time. That's right. All right, guys. Yep, we're getting out of here, and we're going to be in New York. We're going to be recording. I think we're going to be doing a very New York-appropriate episode that time, and we will let you know what that is uh, just before we release it. But once again, thank you, Ryan, as usual, for uh, talking to me every week. Um, This is more valuable for me than you even know. Yeah, so thanks a lot. Okay, so I want to expand on one thing we covered only briefly in today's episode about the perks of being a wallflower, that it has indeed been banned by some school districts for its quote-unquote adult content, not necessarily referring to the mental health issues covered, but more due to the drug use, sex, and masturbation depicted. But as a therapist who has worked with children, this really saddens me because parents need to be able to talk to their children about these issues, not hide the reality of them. Banning books like Perks of Being a Wallflower will not prevent kids from learning about these issues. It will only hinder them from developing a healthy understanding of them. Secondly, I know I shared a bit about my own experiences, and I do want to emphasize I am in no way comparing my experiences with those of Charlie, but only want to show that trauma comes in all shapes and sizes and can have a lasting impact. So please don't minimize your own negative life experiences or the experiences of others. Even though trauma can have a lasting impact, there are effective treatment options available, like Mike and I discussed today. Finally, and this was a message I needed to hear, and maybe Charlie needed as well, so I'm going to share it with you. It's hard being the wallflower. The fear of not being liked or accepted can be overwhelming at times, but if you're willing to try, you can find people that will love and accept you. You just have to be willing to take those couple of steps onto the metaphorical dance floor of life. And you too can find that feeling of being infinite. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Thank you to my co-host, Mike Graham. If you like the show, please check out our most media pages. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. See the show notes for links to those pages. We also love hearing from our listeners, so if you want to give feedback or suggest something for us to cover, you can email us at poppsych101 at gmail.com. 
We are on all major podcast distribution channels, so please subscribe, rate, and review our show wherever you listen. We would greatly appreciate it. For Mike Graham, I'm Ryan Engelstad. Thanks for listening to Pop Psych 101.